with these exercises, you can get people into the practice of having, let's say, feedback conversations. So it's a muscle that you grow and also that you can do it more skillfully. So the particular model of feedback that I teach is from Jim Dethmer and Dana Chapman. The first thing they recommend is that you actually anchor the feedback conversation in affirming the relationship. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Ronan Harrington. Ronan is a resilience expert. He's an expert in organizational culture. He's got a master's in public policy from Balliol, Oxford. He then went on to be a strategist for the British government. He worked at the Foreign Office and he authored a report about the world in 2030 and how the British government should respond. He taught on KPMG's executive leadership program and then he did some videos on YouTube where he said Extinction Rebellion has a hippie problem and he got hired by Extinction Rebellion. And as Boris Johnson was running for prime minister, he was running the counter arguments for Extinction Rebellion. So we talk a bit about that. He's also worked as a political strategist for three other UK political entities. A fascinating conversation with Ronan. We dive deep into some tips and tools around how to build culture of trust through vulnerability in leadership teams. And we talk about politics. I had a fantastic conversation with him. I hope you enjoy it. I'm Ronald Harrington. I work with companies on how to create healthy, high-performance cultures, and I'm based in the UK. Thank you for coming on, Ronan. We were chatting because we share client, and you've got a unique take on what it takes to develop culture. So can I get you to expound on that a little bit? Yeah, you can. So I really don't like the word, and I often won't use it with clients, but essentially my approach to leadership and culture is based on, I think, a body of work that's loosely called conscious leadership, which I have a, I and many people I think have allergies to. But what conscious leadership means is things that we were previously unconscious about come to the forefront of our awareness and we change your behavior based on that. So a classic example to help people relate to it is actually can be found in your romantic relationships. And you often unearth this if you if you do a little foray into couples therapy. I, I think people can become aware of it in their own time, but they can be in a conflict dynamic or they could be rising tension in their relationship with their romantic partner. They can instinctively withdraw from the person and then their mind can be filled with doubts and judgments about that person. Now, someone who is unconscious believes the stories they tell themselves. The person is 
XYZ, the worst image internally that they have. However, you know, if you were to do a, you know, a workshop on how to be in a good relationship, or as I said, if you, do, if you do couples therapy, you can be like, ah, okay, I can see that that really bruised me. I'm withdrawing. I noticed that I have this really strong story about who my partner is. And, you know, I'm going to allow that to be there, but also choose a different course of action. So in couples therapy, they call withdrawal a losing strategy, even though instinctively we want to do it. And even though it feels good in the moment, actually, it, it undermines the fabric of the relationship. And so we have to ask ourselves, what might that look like in a business context? You're not in a, uh, typically not in a romantic relationship with someone that you're working alongside, but you are relating to them. You're in high pressure, high stress environments. It's very easy for tension and stress to get the better of you. And often we can respond unconsciously in ways that erode our relationships and disrupt the carefully woven cultural fabric of an organization. So um, what's interesting is that with the client that we worked with, uh, actually the, the context for it was the culture canvas work that you did with them. So you uh, mapped out, this is what a good culture looks like for growth. And then the question I asked them is, what would it look like to embody these words in a sheet of paper? And what, you, what happens when you do that is that you could have on your culture canvas, uh, for example, um, a behavior that we don't want to tolerate might be gossiping. And we go, okay, so on paper, we don't want to gossip. And yet we know all the time that people gossip. And when they become conscious of it, they realize, ah, this is an incredible way for me to forge interpersonal bonds with someone on a Friday evening after work, or this is a great way for me to blow off steam. And so in the psychological literature, I'm a big fan of Robert Keegan, professor of psychology at Harvard, developmental psychology, and he talks about competing commitments. Uh, the idea that, yeah, we do have a commitment to uphold cultural values like no gossiping. And at the same time, we have a commitment to blow off steam and a commitment to bond with our colleagues. And for every single behavior that you want to discourage, and for every single behavior you want to encourage, I guarantee you there is a shadow opposite of it that people are engaging in, subtly undermining the culture that they need to become conscious of and shift over time. Aha. Uh -huh. Give me an example of one of those shadows, another example of one of those shadows. Another example of a shadow would be a cultural commitment to empowering people and to decentralizing autonomy. You know, the idea that we trust you implicitly, you get on with the job. The organization might have a cultural commitment to that. And yet the actual individual issue might have serious issues around letting go of control. And those issues around letting go of control often, you know, if you're to do sustained work on them in a coaching or a therapeutic environment, they often come from wounding, even trauma in childhood. And that control mechanism, that instinct and that impulse is uh, what's called a compensating strategy. It's something that the individual has done all their life because it's a way of feeling safe. And so you can talk to the cows come home about empowering people and having a decentralized culture. But if leaders haven't done a degree of self-inquiry into, oh yeah, actually, I'm aware that I have, I, I struggle with this thing of letting go of control. Um, so when I say shadow, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a malicious thing. It's something that is, we actually can't see. It's, it's something that is outside of our awareness to date. Ah, okay. So in a, at an intellectual level, that 
individual would completely agree with the company's culture and could even see why that that was a good thing. And and yet at the same time, just be completely blind to the fact that they were a bit of a control freak. Yes, exactly. It's the human condition to be able to, for multiple things to be simultaneously in conflict and us not to notice or not drive us mad. So that, that sort of dissonance doesn't even, it, well, obviously it's obvious to their staff, who are then who can often then be quite cynical about this culture that the leaders are professing because the behavior doesn't match. So I do an exercise with my clients that is on the spicier level of exercises. And it's an exercise called a, a cyclonic inquiry. So a cyclone goes round and round and down and down, put them into groups of eight. And you know, the first round is you know, if you really knew me, dot, dot, dot. It's an opportunity for people to share the aspects of themselves that you wouldn't normally share, but you feel a, a relatively uh, unburdened when you share it. So for example, you have a chronic health condition. I often hide that from my clients because I don't want them to potentially judge me. People have this with mental health. It's relieving uh, to bring more reality into the room for any team. But the second round is if you were to collaborate closely with me, dot, 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 a negative quality you would notice is, and for me, if I was in the room with you, Dominic, and we were in the same sharing circle, I might say, if you were to collaborate closely with me, you would know that I'm an attention seeker. I love and crave the limelight. And if there's a moment where I might get a little bit of limelight and you don't, I might just palm you off to get it. And, and at the end of that, I get them to say, and it's mine. And that's really important because the statement, and it's mine, is a, is a signifier and it says, I'm becoming aware of it. I'm working on it. And I also want you to know it so you can hold me to account. Typically, what happens in organizations is we already see and notice already the flaws and the blind spots of the people who work with us. If, if someone was to take that seven people off into another room and say, could you talk about Ronan's blind spots and flaws? They could rattle them off immediately. However, we haven't broken the ice with a culture where I can acknowledge my flaws they can hold me to account. So when I talk about a conscious culture, it's about high-performing teams dropping in to a more courageous and honest form of relating so we can actually be with the truth of what's going on. And is there a third round? Yes, there is. Third round is the healing bam. And, and it's also very important, which is if you were to collaborate closely with me, a positive quality you'd notice is because that's also important. So Dominic, if you were to collaborate closely with me, you would notice that I am never far away from the absurdity of everyday life and the work that we do. And it brings a particular lightness and vibe to our work where it feels way easier and fun. Don't take myself too seriously. And it's mine. And what's important is that we rarely make time in, in teams and in organizations to actually also for the people themselves to acknowledge, this is my genius. This is my gift. And so what I find when I do an exercise like that is there's more humanity in the room. There's relief that we can finally end the charade of not acknowledging that we all don't have flaws and we're trying to work with them all the time. And also that we've got incredible gifts in the room. So that's a team becoming and allowing in more of what they are, which will improve their performance. That vulnerability, letting vulnerability in as a precursor for trust. Have, so one of, the, one of the ways I act try to tease this out as I ask people in the room if they tell their colleagues if they've got spinach in their teeth or food in their teeth and what I find is most people say yes right because it's it's so your thing about the cyclonic inquiry that there's not a lot of emotional attack but there's always one or two people who say no and you just think how comfortable or uncomfortable 
you know, I just you get a sense of how uncomfortable some people are saying anything uh, at that point. Then I say, well, what if one of your colleagues has, you know, took the skirt into her knickers or, you know, left their fly down? And typically there's a few more people go, I'm not, no, no, I'm not, we're not, we're not going there. And it's like, this is a group of people who, who allegedly work together quite, you know, all the time. So what's interesting to me is that, and I always say with when you've got something in your teeth, friends tell, but you have to cross a threshold of awkwardness to identify that someone has something in their teeth or they've got their fly down. And, and so actually what it's pointing to is there is uh, people have different capacities for their ability to tolerate difficult emotion. And actually a lot of the work that I do, the foundation of it, one is self-awareness that we actually develop that metacognition that we can even know what's happening inside us, whether it be thoughts or emotions. But the second is that we increase our tolerance for difficulty you know, I'm sure you'd agree with me that one of the red threads of a high-performing culture is a culture of ongoing feedback that requires you to build a capacity to go through that <clears throat> moment where you say, look, this is what I see, this is what's going on. So I think that it's a great example that actually points to a threshold that needs to be crossed in order to get a better culture. Well, and it, what it does is it, it highlights that not everybody in the room has the same threshold. Because quite often there'll be somebody in the room who's, for whom the threshold is really low. Because I then say, well, what if anybody in the room has BO or bad breath? Will anybody in the room tell anybody else? Sometimes there's one person. And it's like, well, you are the team's truth seeker, right? Like we, the team can count on you because you have a low threshold that, to, to be prepared to speak up. Uh, and so I find it, it's just fascinating. But the thing is, it's the awareness, isn't it? Because the team have been interacting together for a while as you say, would probably be able to, in a room, tell each other what, if the other person wasn't in the room, uh, what everybody's flaws or strengths were. But somehow, because I think, I think poor performance at work is much less spinach and much more BO, right? I think it's a higher level of tolerance for difficult conversations to get over. Yes. But first of all, that tolerance can be cultivated. So there obviously will be a truth teller in the team. And often, if you look at, let's say, the big five personality framework, they're very high on the trait disagreeableness. So they're comfortable with disagreeableness. Some people are terrified of it. So we know there's obviously going to be a classroom of mixed ability when it comes to being honest. However, with these exercises, you can get people into the practice of having, let's say, feedback conversations so it's a muscle that you grow and also that you can do it more skillfully. So the particular model of feedback that I teach is from Jim Dethmer and Dana Chapman. Their book, The 15 Criminals of Conscious Leadership, is a really incredible book. And the first thing they recommend is that you actually anchor the feedback conversation in affirming the relationship. That there's some degree of like, hey, Dominic, we're just getting to know each other. I like your vibe. I don't really know you, but this is something that I see or you did this thing and it impacted me. Uh, and, and I'm sharing it because I have really good instincts about our connection. I would love there to be transparency and trust between us. And also, if I'm doing something, I want to know it. And there's a difference in that approach that you've just experienced than another approach which is, you know, from the kind of the radical candor school of I'm just going to kind of come, come down there to the, the floor below and, and tell them like it is. There's a skillfulness that can actually ground the nervous system and, and make it much easier for everyone. I do think, though, that that's probably radical candor when it's being misused because there is that dimension that she talks about of, you know, caring deeply about you. But when we were talking before we were recording, you were saying you're fascinated by the impact of power on culture. How does that show up in teams for you? 
I saw some context is my background is in politics and activism. I used to work as a futurist for the foreign office and was the head of political strategy for Extinction Rebellion at one point and worked in two, three different political parties in my 20s. So I have, I have quite, um, the Machiavellian lens is very close to me. I see the world through the lens of real politic and power, which is interesting when the work I do, especially in culture, is on the softer dimension of being a human. It's, it's, it's encouraging, say, more humane culture. So there's a very interesting creative tension. And I think the first place that I notice it show up actually is in efforts to change the culture. So often I'll be brought in by a chief people officer, head of learning and development. They'll see toxic dynamics, uh, let's say, in the workplace, or they'll just see that like the culture really doesn't have a good coherence. And often we'll assume, well, it'll just take us you know, prioritizing with time and money a two-day offsite and bring everyone together. However, before that, there's a whole body of work, which I would call constituency building. So it's similar to politics, if you want to win an election, you've got your early adopters, you've got your open-minded, persuadable middle, and you've got your blockers. You've got the people who aren't on board and will never be on board. And the question is, how can you bring in your early adopters how can you give more ownership to the persuadable middle? But then there's a political strategy question, which is around, there might be some very senior people in this place, senior leadership team, who will block and undermine this work. How do you deal with them? And what might, as I would say, ethical power plays look like, where you might, for example, isolate or remove them from the process in order for the majority of the people to adopt a new culture. So that's one example constituency building when it comes to wider organizational change. I want you to tell me about an ethical power play now. When you sort of said isolate, I had some examples in mind and I thought, is that theoretical or is that something you've helped facilitate? So the best example of ethical power plays are ones that I've constructed myself. And maybe a, yeah, an example would help. So it's October 2019. Extinction Rebellion is at the height of its cultural and political power. It's in 60 cities all over the world. I'm coordinating its political strategy. And my job, because there's a general election that's about to break between Corbyn and Johnson, at the time it's 2019 in the UK, Boris Johnson had just prorogued Parliament, which is an illegal move to temporarily suspend Parliament. There's going to be a general election on the cards. It was a real time of political volatility. And we were trying to plan a, a major nonviolent civil disobedience campaign. And our target was Westminster. And we wanted to basically shut down governments so that they would you know, meet our demands of bringing the climate target from 2050. We wanted it down to 2025, which kind of between us and the listeners obviously is a, a crazy move in terms of crashing the economy. What it does is it pulls the Overton window towards uh, a closer date. So, you know, off the back of our efforts, I think the Lib Dems and Labour at the time moved their climate target of net zero to 2030. So that's just kind of a part of our, our, our wider political strategy. You anchored on 2025 and anything better than 2050 is a win. Exactly. Yeah. You're pulling the conversation over, but that's not the ethical power play. So the ethical power play is that if a general election is called and it would have been a snap general election, us targeting Westminster and, and government would have been a joke because all of the politicians would have been out in their constituencies campaigning. Now, often you'll find in organizations, the hardest thing to do is to pull back 
to a commitment to a losing strategy. It's really, really hard when there's so much time and energy and reputation invested. There's almost uh, so many companies will follow through on something that is guaranteed to fail rather than cutting their losses and kind of failing fast. And so my job was to facilitate an incredibly difficult process. And my job was to steer them through a process where we could actually come to a level of shared agreement on either switching the strategy or, or not. And obviously in that process, you've got many informal pockets of power that would necessarily want to do something different. And when you're in a same kind of coordinating position, you have to assess whether they might be disrupting and how do you remove them from the conversation? How do you sow seeds of doubt in their plan? And so all of a sudden, you're in this careful balancing act between trying to cultivate a culture of trust and honesty and, uh, you know, Extinction Rebellion is a decentralized organization, and at the same time, work with the realities of power. And Extinction Rebellion faces many, many times. You know, at one point, they wanted to fly drones at Heathrow, and there had to be a real concerted effort to block and stop that because it would have been a PR disaster. So I'm curious on your reflections working with organizations about when are ethical power plays or just power plays in general a necessity for, let's say, a CEO, and did the ends justify the means? Well, I've worked with a number of clients, and I think I think now I am much clearer with a prospective client to understand what level of change at the executive team level they are comfortable or uncomfortable with. It's a bit like, how comfortable are they going to be with some change? How right do they think the current team is? Because undoubtedly, they will have a blind spot around some of their team and on this journey to high performance. And I think it's probably true that those clients that we work with in the short term versus the long term get to the point where they become too uncomfortable to make the change. And if there isn't also some pressure from the rest of the team, then I think they're likely to just sort of dribble on. It's about like buying a gym membership and then never going to the gym. So you you like the idea of getting fit, but then somehow doing the work because it's hard, right? I mean, the soft stuff's really tough. Well, yes. And I would say one of the most important things to do if you really want to get culture right is fire often senior people with formal and informal power who are not rowing in the same direction. And often that isn't just about confronting them one-to-one. -one. They've often built up a tribe of loyalists around them. So this is where you actually get into the reality of you know, tribal factions and political parties and how you take measure of your own power, your own political capital, their political capital. And you also, you know, so much of power plays is about timing. When do you strike? I, mean, I think that the whole Elon Musk Twitter drama in the last week is incredibly interesting. So through the lens of power, Elon Musk comes in, he's got absolute authority as the person who is owned. He clears uh, immediately away the CEO, the CFO, fires half the staff. And that's a purge. That's a classic political strategy play in order to assert your power. And then he goes on to, you know, fire 90% of the staff. And then he issues a mandate of, you know, extreme hours, you know, intense work culture. And the people that come in will self-select that. Now there are trade-offs with that, huge trade-offs in terms of burnout, the potential for you not to have a diverse workforce, but a, a particular profile. And yet it's, it's an example of a particular political approach to cultural change. In my own work life, when I was uh, an executive at Pier One, you know, we started doing some team work with a coach, building vulnerability, 
working on the team, knowing the team and trusting the team and being able to give each other feedback. And for some people, that was just an environment that they didn't want to work in. So they fought it and lost because the vast majority of the team, that was what we wanted. And then I was thinking, I was in, as <laughs> when you were talking about Elon Musk, I took over an organization as managing director, I had about 120 people. And I just, we had, there was time was against us. So in the end, I made 120 people redundant and hired 99 new people. And I kept six people for six months to train the new people because actually we were up against the clock and I just couldn't believe we could make the change necessary in the time we had with the 120 people that I had inherited. So did it work out? Yeah, it did. Yeah. That business went on to thrive. I exited shortly after all of that happened. So you said you worked for Instinction Rebellion and four other political parties. I think you said three. Three. And you'd work for the government. So you're a student of political strategy. You're obviously prepared to work with people who don't share the same political beliefs as you, or do you have to, does there have to be some overlap? No, no. I mean, the kind of politics that I advocate is something that is pluralistic. Like I'm a really big believer in building complicated majorities on the issues that matter most that we have a shared interest on. I think that, you know, kind of temperamentally, and I think I'm probably more center left, but, you know, I read the FT every day and I'm very interested in more centrist and center right. And I think actually critically, and I think this is one of the huge failures of the left, is that it is all about inclusivity, except for people who don't share their views. Those people are beyond the pale and they're not in our tribe. And actually, that's a recipe for political suicide. You have to be able to work with people and negotiate and collaborate with people and become friends with people who don't think and talk and act like you. It's one of the keys to leadership, especially just given the sheer level of individuation and diversity. Yeah, so there isn't any block with me working with people who think differently politically. And how did Extinction Rebellion end up hiring you? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm an unconventional activist. I started off as a critic of Extinction Rebellion. I was making videos on YouTube. My first was, uh, after the first rebellion, does Extinction Rebellion have a hippie problem? And they exploded onto the scene. And and yet the images that were in uh, many of the newspapers were of people doing yoga on Waterloo Bridge. And I was like, the optics of this are terrible. This feeds into the trope and the stereotype of the entitled, indulgent, middle-class hippie activist who doesn't have a job. And I'm like, this is terrible. Like if you, you know, climate crisis is serious. And if you want to build a movement for change, there has to be people who look like you and sound like you and talk like you and act like you who are on the ground. And so people should be seeing vicars and nurses and doctors and business people who are demanding a serious response to the climate. And if they see that, then they start to identify themselves with the issue and with the movement. If they just see a bunch of middle-class people, like, I mean, you know, the Just Stop Oil, which is a kind of a splinter group, an offshoot of Extinction Rebellion, which has just gotten an incredibly negative uh, response, you know, they seized on activists being called Sebastian and Indigo. And, you know, it's just it's just fodder for Nigel Farage. And so actually, interestingly, the second video I made was what can Extinction Rebellion learn from Nigel Farage? I was like, he's taken a fringe issue over 25 years and achieved the biggest political success of the century with Brexit. And he has a unique ability, despite being 
you know, a very wealthy ex-financier to speak to people who live in Hull and in Newcastle and people who Extinction Rebellion really struggle to relate to and talk to. And so my big emphasis was on this idea of building complicated majorities. And then the founders basically said, look, put your money where your mouth is. You know, don't criticize us from the outside. If you think this is important, come join us. So I took a sabbatical from the consulting work I was doing and, and joined them and then suddenly found myself in one of the senior leadership positions being like, wow, I didn't imagine myself doing this, but here we go. Very good. Um, the, it, there's two things that, as you were speaking, sprung to mind. One was that I think in Ireland last week, there was a terrible optics moment where people, protesters stopped an ambulance getting to hospital and somebody died. Now, as I've read through, it looks like the person probably would have died anyway, but that's not really the point. The point is that you've got a moment where the opposition can rally around something which looks like you might be thinking about the climate, but you're ignoring these people, this person, and you've caused them to die or potentially cause their death and, you know, get a perspective. And then there was an article I read at the weekend about what Labour should learn from the Australians. And it, the essence was the Australian Labour Party had this slogan, just stop the boats. And they went on and on and on because they knew the government couldn't actually do it. And so they were on safe ground. It wasn't that they could do it either, but it became this focal point this very simple message that they just banged on about all the time and single issue. Although, as you say, the Labour Party in the UK probably won't take their advice because that would mean adopting a policy that somehow they can't wear. Yeah. So there's two examples you raised. Um, curious why you brought them up. What kind of reflection do you have? Well, you were talking about sort of ethical power plays. And I was thinking about the Labour Party where they, from the outside, it just seems they would rather be right than in power. Right. And so they, they'd rather sit around and have an argument internally if somebody has to be right. And that's fantastic. As long as they have a principle, they'd rather be principled and out of power, with the exception of Tony Blair, who built a complex coalition. And then the, you were just giving some examples of, you know, people doing yoga on Waterloo Bridge. And here was an example from Ireland at the weekend, which seemed to be a sort of bursting of the dam of support for climate crisis in public. Yeah. Let me respond to both of them in reverse. So, I actually think that Labour under Keir Starmer are basically playing the Tony Blair playbook back to power. They're running a repeat of the Tory disaster in 93 and how to bide your time and slowly build up this kind of mainstream and even centre-right credibility for you to get power. It was interesting, the front page of Sunday Times magazine was a picture of Keir Starmer and underneath, very cringy line was, yes, I've kissed a Tory. So they're in a real charm offensive with the kind of centre-right and even, I would say, right-wing sentiment uh, that, you know, is very powerful in, in Britain. And again, you know, there's a big debate on the left as to whether that's a betrayal of left-wing values or you know, this is kind of watered down centrism or centre right. But I do see them more and more playing the political game to get into power uh, in a way that Corbyn and John McDonnell didn't. In Ireland, yeah, those things are horrible when they happen. The one that blew up in the UK was about a man who missed a funeral. The ambulance thing shouldn't have happened. There is a policy in nonviolent civil disobedience that if any ambulance or anything like that is in your way, you immediately cease, you get out of the way and you let them through. Because obviously both ethically and it's a PR disaster if someone dies, uh, that you basically facilitate someone dying. So I'm surprised that happened. Yeah, you know, it's a tricky one. And it's one that I struggle with. Ultimately, I, I'm working in the business world now. You know, six months ago, I had 
a one-to-one meeting with the CEO of one of the major oil and gas companies to talk to them. And actually, off the record, they said, in a way, because of Extinction Rebellion in Greta Thunberg, they had political space to actually drive the energy transition that they wanted to drive. So in a way, sometimes activism and disruptive activism works in synergy with very pioneering, reforming business leaders who are looking to kind of break free of the shackles of, let's say, their shareholders and other incumbent interests and actually make the change that their business makes needs to make in order to be sustainable over the next 50 and 100 years. But yeah, that's not the work I'm doing now. Now the work I'm doing is about, you know, healthy, high-performance culture, which which also was informed by my experience at Extinction Rebellion. Like, ultimately, I, I describe Extinction Rebellion as a left-wing J.P. Morgan. It was intense, urgent, chaotic. You know, I seriously burnt out, really impacted my health. And, and actually that, the core of that, you know, not wanting that to happen to me or to other people is, you know, is the basis of what I do now. Well, before I get onto that, because I want to talk about that a little bit, it's just, I've had Paul Van Ziel on the podcast and he's the founder of uh, Conduit. So it's a members club in London. They do 400 events a year. And Paul Van Ziel was the lawyer who was running the South African Truth and Reconciliation Group. And so he said, look, in South Africa, what we had to do is we had to forgive so that we could create a better future. And he said the activists and big oil, for example, big oil have the money, the activists want some change. They have to forgive each other so that they can come together and move on. And so the events that they run at the Conduit Club just outside Covent Garden are about how do we change poverty, hunger, climate, and how do we bring people with money and people with activism together to forgive each other and plan a better future? It was a great conversation with him. And I think the work that he and his co-founders at The Conduit, Nick and Rowan, have done is remarkable. So resilience is the thing that you speak about. How Define resilience for me. I would define resilience as the ability to adapt well to change and disruption and the ability to cope with setbacks and the ability to keep going in the face of adversity. Did you have blind spots? Yeah. I think that as a speaker, obviously I talk about the science of resilience and high-performing teams, but I think what's important about what I bring is as a cautionary tale. You know, I I lost my brother in a car accident when I was four. He was knocked down by a car outside of our house. It was a very traumatic experience for our family. It's rural Ireland in the 90s. There's no Brené Brown talking about vulnerability. You know, my my mother's hair started falling out. My dad went back to work two days later. We never really spoke about it. I spoke about compensating strategies at the beginning. My compensating strategy was in order to deal with my own grief and also this family environment that had become frozen with grief, I was going to become someone. I was going to become a success. You know, I grew up in a small village. I was going to leave the village. And that compensating strategy and that drive, that huge drive for ambition, you know, took me places. And you mentioned some of the work that I've done. And yet that very same drive put me on a collision course with burnout and very debilitating health issues that I'm still reckoning with years later. And I think that I didn't know how to stop. I didn't know how to put healthy boundaries in what I was doing. When the warning signs were coming physically, I did what we often do, which is we numb and distract. There's a great line from my former company, Tough Cookie, from Michael Matani, that we numb and distract with booze, carbs, and smartphones. And so I was in this position of like, relative to my age, like a considerable power. I remember, you know, one of the days of the Second Rebellion being in a tit for tat with Boris Johnson through press releases in the media and 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 kind of shaping a, a national narrative. And yet after I would do a media interview at eleven in the morning, 
to cope with the anxiety and the stress of being in a national moment, I would go straight to a pub in Westminster and have two pints, just calm down the nervous system. I would be on Zoom calls and, you know, negotiating with political parties and have such anxiety that I would turn the video off and take a Valium just to calm down. These things catch up with you. And it triggered a really significant health crisis and chronic pain condition that I'm still dealing with years later, like even to this very moment and this morning. And, you know, I think that if you look at the stats in burnout, 80% of people in organizations are showing signs of burnout. 30% have symptoms of burnout. Like we're in a real mass burnout moment. And I hate to make the instrumental argument because it shouldn't need to be made, but like it decimates productivity. It really erodes team culture. 40% of people, according to the last McKinsey report, are thinking of leaving their jobs. Burnout was a huge driver of that. And so I try and teach people what I have had to learn over the last couple of years, keeping going in the face of adversity, which is what you have to do when you've got chronic pain and there isn't any effective treatment. And so it's that cross-reference of the clinical literature and resilience. And that's what I teach to organizations who have these huge growth ambitions and this big agenda and yet they need to be able to go the distance. However, there's another aspect to resilience that isn't about, you know, the cutting edge tools and techniques and the stuff that Navy SEALs do. And I really like this definition of resilience from Bruce Daisley, who has a new book out called Fortitude about resilience. And he defines resilience as a strength that we draw from one another. And I think that's a really interesting framing. There was an interview with him, with Rory Sutherland, uh, the famous ad man. And Rory Sutherland said, it's a bit like the thing you want to hear when you're in a doctor's office is that the thing that you have is the thing that's going around. You don't want to hear that the thing that you have is a rare thing that they don't understand that just you have. Or when the lights go off in your house, it's a major inconvenience and a stress and a hassle. However, if the lights go off on the whole street, it's almost a, a moment of communitas and collective joy. And so increasingly, the tools are important in order to sustain high levels of performance. But actually, one of the big insights I've had this year is that we need less content and more containers. And what I mean by containers is spaces that deliberately allow us to be in a different way together. So one of the formats that I run when I'm working with organizations doing this healthy, high-performance culture work is that after, let's say, these transformational offsites, we put them into crews. That crew will meet for an hour, let's say on a Wednesday or Thursday at midday, once every two weeks. We found that's the minimum amount of time commitment for something to stay coherent. And in that space, it's a very simple space where as leaders, which you know is often a lonely, isolating role, they come together and they essentially unburden themselves, whether it's personally or professionally. They talk about the stuff that's going on in their messy, complex lives and they get some reflections. And I think that more than anything, which is free and self-organized, is what organizations need to institutionalize in order for people to actually hold themselves together as we go through this really hairy moment in world history. You've got the FTX collapse and you've got, you know, talk of climate crisis and the cost of living and mortgage interest rates and layoffs and, and the company pressures as they have always been. People need support structures for that so they can stay resilient. Burnout, it gets talked about as sort of an epidemic. But when you talk about burnout, you're talking about, and you mentioned the Navy SEALs, you're talking about high performance, high intensity, long hours. I don't think that there are that many high perform, like the, the Venn diagram of high performing, high hours, and those people who claim to be burnt out. The overlap, I think, is quite small. 
the epidemic of burnout seems to be people who are a bit miserable about their jobs. Not, I've worked 70 hours and I'm physically exhausted and I've, you know, mobile phone, carbohydrates and alcohol. It's just, I can't get out of bed in the morning because actually what I do is just a bit shit. Yeah. So Christina Balash, who's the professor emeritus of sociology at Berkeley, she's one of the leading thinkers on burnout. And one of her frameworks that she uses is the motivational hygiene framework around burnout. And so there are motivational factors. If you aren't engaging someone so they feel that it's worth getting out of bed for doing something, the work that they do matters. They have a voice in the team. They feel connected. You don't have that natural swell of energy to get you to do that. Why would you do it? You don't matter. And there's also hygiene factors. If there is confusion about your role, if you've got inconsistent line management, if there isn't like a proper setup in the office for you to do your work, these things are the drip, drip, drip that create an accumulation of stress and tension that also burns you out. So you're right. Not everyone is working 70 hours a week and just like numbing it until they crash. There's a, a more subtle form of burnout that still erodes our energetic foundations. And you also have to remember that people aren't just getting burnt out from their work. Life and the way you, you know, we're structured at the moment creates the conditions for burnout. You know, whether it's your teenage children going through a mental health crisis or they're being bullied online or you've got elderly parents, there's a lot of squeezing factors that actually are depleting us. Yeah, I was with Nick Marks at the weekend and he said, Dom, the currency of relationships is time. And I was thinking about that when you were thinking about these human beings getting together and talking. And, you know, one of the contributory factors must be Lots of people are spending their entire lives staring at a computer screen, either on their own or staring at Zoom. And I know when I'm doing the work I do with clients, at the end of a day on Zoom, I'm exhausted. I get no positive energy out. I'm just pouring in. And the face-to-face, -face, I finish the end of the day, I'm exhausted, but exhilarated. It's a very different experience. Yes. And I would say that the offsites and workshops that I do with clients, there's obviously good content and good framework and exercises and practices, but the real value is the actual feeling of being in a tribe that I'm connected to and connecting on all of these different levels. It's nourishing, it's, it's renewing, it's sustaining. And I think you're right. We're glued to our laptops and have current information coming to us, particularly if we're connected in with social media and the news, that is just destabilizing and too much for an, an individual in a room on their own to be with. It's just depleting over time. Yeah. What is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier? I wish I knew how to stop and rest. It's a hard one for me, you know, because it's had such terrible consequences. But I think when you've got a particular achievement-oriented personality type, it's really difficult to rest. It's edgy to rest. People really struggle with it. They get really restless. And it's a deliberate practice. And I, and I wish I knew the importance of it. Yeah, I have to go on holiday that are do holidays. Otherwise, I get twitchy. I have to have a plan to achieve something whilst I'm on holiday. Otherwise, I can't go. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. And yeah, I would encourage you to challenge that and have little experiments of, of idleness. <laughs> I will. I will try. On the upside, I can surf. I set myself a goal this year of learning to surf, and so I can surf. So. Well, I mean, I'd love to go surfing with you. I was surfing at the weekend. That's one of the reasons why I've moved down here is to, is to be on the South Coast and surf. Fab. I'd love that. And uh, a quick shout out to Rob Belgrave, who put us together at PAX 8. Thank you, Rob. Without you, we wouldn't know each other. So that's cool. Um, what books do you think people should read? You've, we've mentioned a few along the way, but... Yeah. So I would recommend The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership by Diana Chapman and Jim Dethmer. That's been really informative for my work. 
And then in order to switch off, there's a great writer. She was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize this year, Claire Keegan. And she has got these tiny novellas. They're 80 pages. You'll read it in a two-hour sitting. Small things like these and Foster are just two beautiful works of fiction that will just carry you away. And if you're someone that is restless and you know you've got home from work at a, a relatively good time and you've had your dinner but you find yourself drawn to the work emails again these are two short books that will just carry you away and, and give you a feeling of restoration okay brilliant and then we've mentioned bruce daisley's new book fortitude fortitude he's good i've had him on as well he does some good work ronan thank you very much indeed for being a guest with me today it's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.